If you enjoy listening to Foul Play and appreciate all the hard work that goes into each episode, you can show your support by becoming a Patreon. When you sign up, we will mail you a welcome package straight to your door. And you get really cool perks like ad-free and early released episodes. We will also give you a shout out here on the podcast. Thank you, Don Butler and Lucia Benarica for signing up this week. To show your support, you can go to patreon.com slash it's foul play. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash it's foul play. Or go to it's foul dot com and click Patreon in the menu. Herzog and Wesley Sherman Time were arrested on March 23, 1999, and charged with the kidnapping and murder of Cindy Vanderheiden, along with four additional counts of murder. On May 16, 2001, Sherman Time was found guilty and was sentenced to death. He continued to plead his innocence, blaming everything on Herzog. Please note, there are many similarities between Shermantine and Herzog's trials, so we will not be repeating evidence that you heard in the previous episode. On July 31, 2001, jury selection began in Herzog's murder trial. Herzog's trial was also held in Santa Clara County. Due to the notoriety of the pair and concerns that it would not be a fair trial otherwise, Herzog's final jury consisted of nine women and three men. His defense attorneys were public defender Peter Fox and Kenneth Quigley. Deputy District Attorney Thomas Testa was the prosecutor for the state. He was again assisted by San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office detectives Deborah Scheffel and Steve Kniff. There was a huge list of witnesses called to give evidence during the trial including Dolly Shermantine, Wesley's sister, who Lauren had raped in the 1980s when he used to visit the Shermantine family home. We don't have testimony from the trial, and we have been unable to speak to Dolly, but we did find this clip from Born to Kill, the Thriller Killers documentary. It wouldn't be until late one Halloween night that those dark thoughts would become a cruel reality. Wesley's sister, Dolly, would be the victim. When I was in junior high, we'd all came back and Lauren had spent the night at our house. And he snuck into my room that night when I was asleep and held me down and raped me. In those days, you didn't say anything because our mother would never believe us. So we never spoke about it. Never spoke about it at all. 
Ron Davis, who Herzog had a disagreement with in 1990 over a business contract. Herzog threatened to harm Davis with guns and knives. Linda McClung, whose ordeal was covered in episode 3, Linda met Shermantine and Herzog in a bar and was sexually assaulted by them until she managed to escape the vehicle and run to the neighbors for help. Debbie Brooke, again we covered her ordeal in episode 3, she also met Shermantine and Herzog in a bar. Then they took her to an old mobile home and sexually assaulted her with a pistol. Tina Owens, who said that in 1985 Herzog was present when she was sexually assaulted by Shermantine, and he did nothing to stop it or help her. Denise Dowden, who said that somewhere between 1993 and 1997, Herzog had pointed a large chrome handgun at her and said, put my effing beard down. As the second week of Herzog's trial came to a close, San Joaquin County District Attorney Thomas Testa summoned Wesley Shermantine Sr., Wesley Shermantine's father, to testify. Wesley Shermantine Sr. told the jury that his son had showed up an hour and a half late for work on November 14, 1998, the morning after Cindy was murdered. He said that his son had worked on two Cavaliers County job sites that day, laying tiles and installing siding. According to Shermantine Sr., Wesley stayed on the job until noon and then went on to another job. He said, He just looked like a normal person to me. He was clean. He didn't seem to be tired. A colleague of Shermantine Jr., however, had a very different recollection of that day, saying Shermantine only worked from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on the construction sites. He also summoned Jerry Herzog, Lauren's father. Jerry Herzog took the stand and told the jury that he never liked Wesley Shermantine Jr. He purchased the London property adjacent to the Shermantines' plot in 1968, despite being warned to stay away from them. He was quoted in a Record Net article as saying, I was familiar with them before I moved out there. And, I was told not to move out across from the Shermantines. The elder Herzog said he never liked Wesley Shermantine Jr. and recounted some stories of the boys growing up together. He said shortly after the pair graduated from Linden High School, they showed up drunk at the Herzog home. Again, Record Net quoted him as saying, Lauren was normal, but Wesley was belligerent and a maniac. I didn't bodily throw him off the property, but I ran him off. Jerry Herzog also recalled taking Shermantine and Herzog hunting in Utah in 1992. During the trip, the three were pulled over by the authorities, and Shermantine was arrested for having unpaid tickets. He stated that Wes was put behind bars, and we bailed him out. I don't know why. The last comment actually got a laugh from the court staff, the jurors, and even Lauren Herzog himself. Later in the trial, Sergeant Herrera said that the day he took Herzog into custody in November 1998, he told him, in front of his father and his wife, not to speak to law enforcement and to hire an attorney if he was responsible for the murder of Cindy van der Heiden. 
That's a lie, Herzog's father, Jerry exclaimed, as Lauren's wife Christina put her head in her hands. Jerry Herzog was immediately ordered out of the courtroom by San Joaquin County Superior Court Judge Michael Garrigan. Christina was later interviewed by RecordNet and her recollection of what happened when Herzog was arrested was very different. She says, quote, I said, Herrera, does Lauren need a lawyer? He said, he does not need a lawyer if he did not kill Cindy van der Heiden. I said, Herrera, should he hug his kids a final time before he leaves? He said, no, he'll be back. After a two and a half month trial, the jurors retired to consider their verdict. It took two weeks of deliberations before they delivered their verdict on the 23rd of October, 2001. Of three counts of murder for Cindy van der Heiden, Paul Kavanaugh and Howard King, and of being an accessory to the murder of Henry Howard. On the 10th of December, 2001, Herzog was sentenced to 78 years in a state prison. Herzog was sent to High Desert State Prison in Susanville to begin his 78-year sentence. Just under six months after arriving there, he was stabbed by a fellow inmate, Michael Correa. Correa stabbed Herzog multiple times in the stomach, and whilst he was in a critical condition, he survived surgery and went on to make a full recovery. However, unlike Shermantine, who remains on death row, this is not the end of Herzog's story. Herzog and his legal team felt that he had been treated unfairly during his interviews. They said that he had requested a lawyer a number of times, and yet the interviews continued with no lawyer present. It was time for him and his team to gather the evidence for an appeal. In episodes six and seven, you heard an expert analysis of Herzog's 20th of November, 1998, and 1st of February, 1999 interviews. So here we are going to concentrate on the 21st of March, 1999 interview. The interview clip we are listening to here can be found on YouTube. It is 11 minutes and 20 seconds long and starts with Herzog being read his rights and being told if he wants a lawyer, he should ask for one. Note, this is just clips of a much longer interview tape that we do not have access to. In the interview on Sunday, the 21st of March, 1999, Herzog looks a little dishevelled. He is wearing a dark red V-necked short-sleeved top with a white t-shirt underneath. He is wearing an ID badge and his left arm is handcuffed to the table. He is talking to now-retired Stockton Police Detective Cliff Johnson. The interview starts at 12.32. Let me get this out of because I told you I was going to have to read these right to you. Yeah, I still don't understand but go ahead. No, I'll read them to you and I'll, I'll go through each one so you understand. Okay, so there's no confusion. I never understand, so... Okay, okay. you have a right to remain silent. Okay, you understand that one? That's kind of like what you're just explaining to me. Probably is that you not? I mean, you have the right to not say nothing. Period. Okay. You can drink your soda and they say nothing. What's that? Yeah, more hurt you than anything. Will it hurt you? I don't know. Because again, I don't know what you have to say. Okay. And the next one is anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. So that explains to you that everything we discuss here, okay, could be used against you in court. Okay, it says can and will be used against you. It will be used against you, can be used against you. Okay. 
You have the right to talk to a lawyer, have him or her present with you while you're being questioned. So if you want to say, hey, I want a lawyer, you're not going to get one until Monday, until, unless you can afford one to come in right now, but we're not going to talk to you. Okay. And when, I mean, then we won't talk to you at all. If you're not afford to hire one, a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any question if you wish. And that's, again, where if you can't afford one, then one's going to be given to you come Monday in regards to Cindy's case. Okay. And then if and when you guys decide to talk with us, you and your lawyer, then you can or you won't. One of those two things. Do you understand each of these rights I've explained to you? That yes, no, maybe. In this audio clip, you can hear Herzog saying that he doesn't understand his rights, so they are explained to him line by line. Herzog is then told that he can have a lawyer, but unless he can afford one himself, he won't be getting one until Monday. He is then asked if he understood everything that was being said. After taking a swig from a drinks can, he says yes. At 12.43, we can hear now-retired Stockton Police Detective Rick Ragsdale speaking to Herzog about Daggett Road and the murders of Paul Kavanagh and Howard King, which we covered in episode one. This part of the interview lasts for just over 20 seconds. Here is a clip. Can you give me any more thought to, about uh, uh, what happened out on uh, Daggett Road? Not really. What can you tell me about that? I don't know what I should tell you So he goes up to the driver's side and shoots? You know how many times? Then what happens? I don't much after that. How many people were in the car? You said two, I think, right? I think there was probably should have remained silent. I don't know. I mean, you, like I said, you, like I told you, I mean, we already know what happened. Okay. Now it's your version. I mean, are you happy about this? No way. Were you happy about it then? No. Let me ask you this. What kept you 12 years ago? What kept you from going to the police at that point in time and saying, look, my friend's a psycho. Here's what he just did. The psycho himself. Because you're concerned what, for your own safety? Oh, yeah. I understand that. Okay. Other people understand that, too. Okay. That's kind of what I talked to you about before, that if people don't know what motivates you or what keeps you from doing things, they ain't never going to know. Because all they're going to hear about is from Wes's side saying, this is what we did. And it ain't nothing about this is what just I did. It's what we did, my homeboy and me. You hear Herzog say at the end that he did not go to the police because he was scared of what Sherman time would do to himself and his family. In this next segment, at 13.22, he says, do we have to keep talking? Do we have to keep talking? Well, I'd like to. I know you don't want to, but I don't. After Herzog states that he really doesn't want to keep talking, there is a pause of around 20 seconds before the detective speaks again. 
continuing to explain why it is best to just keep talking now. Well, that's your, I mean, that's your, your choice. There is around 10 minutes missing from the clip at this point, so we don't know exactly what was said during this time. We mentioned it to you the other day, okay? And if it's something that you have knowledge on, like I said, I, 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 we won't go into all the details. We won't, you, know, you just give me a little bit and I'll, I'll talk to the district attorney about it. About the, uh, about the Indian that was shot. But you don't know nothing about that one? I don't know anything about him. You else. After the detective asks about the Indian that was shot, you hear a pause. During this, Herzog shakes his head whilst raising his hands in a I know nothing kind of motion. The detective then says, You don't know about anything else? And Herzog shakes his head. The interview then continues. Herzog raises his right eyebrow and shakes his head while the questions continue and then again states, I don't want to talk. There is a long pause and during this, Herzog leans forward and rests his head on the table. As, 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 even the limited amount of time I've dealt with you, I can read that face. <laughs> okay. Is that you don't know anything else, you just don't want to talk about anything else. Not my time. At 14.03, they moved the interview onto the September 1984 homicide of Henry Howell. We covered Henry's murder in episode one. Throughout this part of the interview, Herzog is moving around in his chair, shaking his head at times, with his hands going up to his head. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, we were there. Which one? The one with the Indian dude. You were there? What happened on that one? Well, they killed that guy. Why are they saying you did? I don't know. Okay. Tell me. So I can fit his story and your story. Well, that dude. We come down the road and he seen some dude lay on the side of the road, kind of like, you know, out of his car or something, or his hacking or something. We turn around and Wes robbed him and, and killed him, dude. The dude was so drunk that the dude would have never known nothing. Anyway, but Wes, he had to kill that dude. Yeah, I, I think it's just too much, man. Kill somebody for 45 bucks. He jumped right for the last time. Yeah. He jumped right. No matter what, oh, you guys believe me because I mean, he is like, well, and that's this type of person you're dealing with. He is like a, he's a cold blooded killer. Yes, sir. Has no emotions. Apparently, a super cold blooded killer, man. I don't 
only one person in the world to care me. Time to lock his up. Oh, he sure has to been down a long time ago. Yeah. Wish it would have been done a long time ago. I don't know. Like I told you before, it starts now. We're going to be putting him away. I want to see it on death row, honestly. You told me you needed my help to put him away. I know you did. You said trust you. Yeah. And I, everybody I'm trusting you, Tony. Thank you for that one. More than anybody. All right, that girl's pretty cool. I'm trusting Joe, too. Both of you guys. I don't trust you guys more than anybody. At 14.34, the interview moves on to the September 1985 homicide of Robin Armtrout, which we covered in episode one. During this, Herzog is again very restless, says he was there, that he watched Shermantine kill Robin, but didn't try to stop it and didn't help. 1985. Do you know of any girls or anyone that Wes Sherman Tyne had killed during that period of time. That must be the one. And how do you know that? Because I can't think of any other. Well, Mike, is this see. an assumption? Are you just assuming he killed her or were you there? Or did he tell you about it? No, there's a girl he killed her. And how do you know that? I, well, I was with him. That's what you need to tell me. I'm trying, Tom. Okay. Uh, there again, my details aren't very much. Very give, me what, give me what you can. I don't even remember how he picked her up or whatever. I just remember that he killed a girl then. Stabbed her to death. I don't know where he left her. Did you try to stop it? he says the first murder he saw Sherman Tyne commit was the Indian man. We know this to be Henry Howell. And the last one was that of Cindy Vanderheiden. They ask him if he understood his rights and he throws his arms up and says, yes, he understood. He confirms that everyone has been fair with him and the clip ends with Herzog having a resigned look on his face. First time that you saw Wesley Sherman Tyne kill anybody was which case? What? The Indian guy. That was the first. And the last? Last time? Was Cindy Vanderheide. Okay. Earlier you told me about your brain being mush. <laughs> right? Yeah, it feels like it. But you know where you're at, right? I'm in jail. You're in jail, and you're at where? What office is this? It's the sheriff's office. All right, the sheriff's office. You're aware of that. You know what you're booked in for? For murder. For which case? Cindy Van Hyde. All right. So you're aware of what's going on. Everything you've heard, all these, the other officers, talking police officers and us, you understand what's going on here. Is that correct? I think I believe so. Yeah. Well, you say you believe. It's either yes or no. What don't you understand? Let me clear yeah, that up. I understand. All right. The rights that they read you yeah. earlier, you understood those, right? Yeah. Because we read it to you over and over again every time we've made contact with you. Right. And you understand those completely, correct, Lauren? Yeah. 
Have I been fair to you? Yeah, I'm saying that. Has Joe been fair to you? Has the sheriff's office been fair to you? Yeah. Stockton Police Department, have they been fair to you? No, no, no. Oh, I, my voice always gets a little bit high. All right. But I just want to make sure that we have to be fair to you. And uh, you know what? We have to be fair to Wes, too. Have I been fair to you? Yes. On August 18th, 2004, a panel of three judges from the 6th Appellate District Court overturned all of four of Herzog's convictions and ordered a retrial on Cindy Vanderheiden's murder. The appellate court ruled that Herzog was coerced while being questioned by San Joaquin County Sheriff's investigators in 1999, but he was not coerced when questioned about Cindy's case. The appellate court ordered a retrial for Herzog in the murder of Cindy Vanderheiden. And on the 22nd of October, 2004, Herzog was convicted on one count of murder. On November 24, 2004, Herzog accepted a plea bargain by pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter and Cindy Vanderheiden's death. He also pleaded guilty to being an accessory to the deaths of Paul Cavanaugh, Howard King, and Henry Howell, and of furnishing methamphetamine to Cindy Vanderheiden shortly before she died. Herzog was sentenced to 14 years in a state prison with credit for six years for the time already served. Do you experience stress or have anxiety? or chronic pain, or or do you have trouble sleeping at least once a week? You're not alone, many of us do. Personally, I get really bad anxiety when speaking in public. Not just that, but it's hard for me to relax and shut down at the end of those days. If you suffer from anxiety, then you are well aware of how crippling it can be, and that just causes more stress. I was searching for anything that would help. Then I discovered feels. Feels is a premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. I've discovered when I'm having the anxiety problems when speaking in public, I just put the feels drops under my tongue, and within a few hours, I'm good to go. And I do the same thing at night to help me sleep. Place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important, and everyone's dose is different. So leave room to experiment over the course of a week or so. You may need to take more or less to get the effects that you're after. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, hangover, or addiction. You can join the Feels community to get Feels directly to your doorstep each month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash foul, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash foul, F-O-U-L, to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping feels.com slash foul
During this season, we are highlighting cases of missing people and deaths that remain unsolved, but who could also be victims of the speed freak killers. In this episode, we are going to talk about Donald Ray Sadbury Jr. Donald, also known as Donnie, was born on the 11th of July, 1959. He was well built, around six foot two inches tall and weighed around 190 pounds. Donald's body was found on the 5th of April, 1993, in room number 111 of Acorn Inn on El Dorado Street in Stockton, California. We spoke to Donald's sister, Michelle, and her husband, Tony. My name is Michelle Tadbury, and married name is Arnez, and I grew up in uh, Stockton, California. Um, I was born uh, August 30th, 1960, and was there all of my life until just in the last five years we've relocated to Santa Cruz, California. So I'm pretty much a native Stocktonian and, you know, uh, know the area well. And we had moved to Linden right before we came here. So Tony and I got married in 1985 and, and uh, lived in various areas of San Joaquin County. So we were in Linden and Lodi and Stockton. And, and then we picked up and moved here about five years ago. My name is Tony Arnez and uh, I was born July 5th, 1951. Originally, my, my family uh, lived in Stockton uh, uh, and moved uh, down to Los Angeles when I was about one, and then we moved back up to Stockton when I was 14. Uh, I went to uh, Fremont Junior High, Franklin High, Delta College, and then the University of Pacific, uh, and have uh, had been pretty much in Stockton until we moved over here to the Santa Cruz area. I was very familiar with the Linden area from my, I'm going to say, high school, junior college days. I had a, a group of friends who were all living in the Linden area, but I really had no familiarity at that point in time in my life with anybody that was doing uh, any type of heavy drug use uh, at all. Uh, later on in my life, I became involved in some things that uh, brought me into the same circle. Me too. That, these people were in, whether or not I, I did not know Sherman Tyne or Herzog at all, but I did know that there was a, a faction out there that was uh, living the lifestyle of, of being involved in uh, drugs, uh, primarily methamphetamine, and that there were certain uh, enforcement aspects that were being carried on by people uh, in that area. We asked Michelle about Donald and what he was like. He never got in trouble as a young person. He was a good student in school. Uh, he was in the National Guard. He got married at 19. He was working two jobs. Uh, he bought a home at the age of 20. Um, he was basically living his American dream. And, you know, him and his wife uh, had a daughter about five or six years after they had been married. And got into drugs gradually. I think it started with, you know, certain types of drugs and then it escalated, you know, to methamphetamine and, you know, and, it, and then he ended up losing his home and he lost his wife and she took the child and moved. And so it's like it pretty much destroyed everything in his life, but he just could not get away from that. He was so addicted and it was terrible. Michelle talks us through her understanding of what happened on the day that Donald died. 
you know, he he started seeing this uh, other gal that we didn't really know too much about her. And her name is Tammy Lee. And they often stayed at various hotels, but they had recently in the years of March and through April of 93, they, they got a room at the Acorn Inn and they were in room 111. And this is the room that he would be murdered in. The security guard told the police that he had heard two gunshots uh, fired and they weren't in rapid succession, but there was you know, a little bit of a pause between these two gunshots. So he tried to walk to the area where he believed the shots were coming from, which put him pretty close to room 111. And when he got there, he realized the door to the room 111 was open about 10 or 12 inches. And he saw half of the body of a female standing there. And when she looked up and saw him, she slammed the door and locked it because he walked over and knocked on the door three or four times and actually tried to open the door. And then she, through the closed door, she says, uh, who is it? And he said, it's security. And she says, what do you want? And security says, well, I heard something coming from your room. And then she says, well, I don't have clothes on. I need to get dressed. And so he stands there for a few minutes. He says, what happened in your room? And she said, everything is good here, no problem. So he stepped away for about two or three minutes according to what he told police. And then the door opened slowly and she stuck her head out and said, call 911, my husband's been shot. And so he couldn't get reception on his cell phone. So he stepped around the corner from the room to get better reception and when he did, she reloaded that shotgun that he had been killed with and crawled out the window and ran and hid underneath a nearby bridge. And that's where she was arrested. Her story was that, you know, he was suicidal and she was struggling to take this 410 thought off shotgun away from him. And it accidentally discharged. And that gun was sent to Department of Justice, and they said no way did it accidentally misfire, that that it took about six pounds of pressure on that trigger for it to actually fire. Initially, law enforcement thought it could have been an accidental death, with the gun accidentally discharging, shooting Donald. However, according to Michelle, the coroner said to Donald's father, your son died at the hands of another person. Michelle is convinced that Donald was murdered and explain to us why. She also explains how Donald knew Shermantine and Herzog. And, and I think Donnie's involvement, he, he wasn't like a drug dealer per se. Uh, I think his involvement was more uh, in the aspects of manufacturing. So, you know, chemicals have to be bought. You know, somebody has to be sent to a certain place to get the chemicals once they you know, cook the methamphetamine, you have the residual that's left that has to be disposed of, you know, that has to be done. And eventually uh, he possessed the knowledge uh, to uh, cook methamphetamine. And I think that's where, you know, it went from, and I'm for just, you know, the purposes for now, it went from, you know, good to, to worse yeah, to bad, you know, for him. Good. and. I think that was his primary involvement uh, with the group of people that we're talking about. And eventually, uh, I think he 
he had mentioned that he had seen some things, as Michelle said, and he was set in his mind that he was going to get them right, uh, and he wouldn't discuss them. He just said things or something of that nature. And uh, I don't know, you know, what they were or, or what his involvement was, but there, I believe firmly that he was killed or murdered because he knew something or didn't do something that they were demanding that he do. He was also known to have taken Wes Shermantine to my ex-sister-in-law's house on several occasions. So he was in direct contact with Wesley Shermantine, whether Shermantine wants to admit it or not. My sister, ex-sister-in-law is still alive and has told me this. That was one of the reasons why I started putting him in that same circle is because of these things that I was finding out and hearing after those guys got arrested. It all made sense. They, they were speed freak killers. And my brother had knowledge of, of making this drug that they pretty much fueled their killing sprees. It just all started making sense, you know, that he was in that same circle. Some of the murders, you know, my brother was directly related to people that were around those people. You know, he dated a girl and she was friends with Robin Armtrout and Robin Armtrout was Herzog's girlfriend and then she gets murdered. So it's like all these little, you know, things. I've read the autopsy report numerous times and, uh, it doesn't really specify if there was believed to be one shot or two that I could find uh, because there was so much projectile. Because what he did was, is he was killed with his own bullets that he actually hollow pointed out. He made these bullets, uh, and I'm not sure. I don't understand, you know, forensics real well on on bullets and things. But he did something to the bullets to make them more deadly he packed his Bingo own shell. yeah and, uh, and this was also a sawed off shotgun and so oh, what hit him was is what killed him was is that this shot went right into the aortic valve and he pretty much bled to death probably within minutes and some of those projectiles penetrated his lungs his spleen uh, i think one was by his cheek I mean, because it's almost like it just scattered and blew up and went in everywhere. And I'm, I'm not sure that you could actually, the coroner didn't specify one shot or two, but he does give details on how big that hole was. And it was pretty large. So the police, in his report, he wrote that there was, it looked like there was one gunshot. But the security guard heard two gunshots and it wasn't right. consecutive rapid fire. There was a pause in between the first and second shot. And I thought that was very significant and they never really did anything with that. Yeah. Yeah, that was my whole thing is if there was definitely two gunshots on him that they could tell, then clearly you can't shoot yourself twice like that with a exactly. sawed off shot. And that was our yeah, as a family is that how do you kill yourself <laughs> twice? When my brother would sporadically come and, and take these uh, recuperation days from his binge, drug binges, he would tell me that he thought he was being followed. Well, I never really noticed anything. And one day when I was taking my daughter down to the mailbox, and we lived on the frontage road uh, off of 99, so I had this super long driveway to walk down to the mailbox. And I saw this car sitting there partially blocking my mailbox. And I thought, well, I, why is this guy blocking my mailbox? And the closer I got, the stranger it got, because he was sitting there, 
you know, stringy hair, dirty looking. He had this really weird grin on his face. And I thought, okay, I am not getting my mail out of the mailbox. This is like too weird. So I turned around and walked back to my house and locked myself in. And I literally watched him sit there for hours. He, he sat there for hours. And I thought, okay, is this guy looking for my brother? And my brother told me, I can't come to your house anymore because, you know, your life, my family's life could be in danger. And I thought, oh my gosh, is he like really off the deep end with this drug binge that he's on? And then years later, when the speed freak killers get arrested, you know, I recognize him as Lauren Herzog. And I'm like, oh my God, that was the guy that was sitting at my mailbox. That is like 100%. I mean, I was that close. The lady who was allegedly in the room with Donald when he died was Tammy Lee Hagen. Donald was apparently also seeing his ex-wife around this time. Tammy's ex-husband, Steve, was a friend of Donald's. Donald lived on and off at Steve's house at various times. Following Donald's death, Steve told Michelle that Donald had a noose hanging in his garage and that he was going to kill himself. Michelle tells us what she knows about Steve, Tammy, and their children. She was married to Steve. They had two children. And one of the children, the the youngest, the little girl, Samantha, was apparently on and off in that room at the Acorn Inn. And we know for a fact, uh, I know Steve Schmann from uh, his prior marriage to someone else other than Tammy because I worked with him and he's a lot older than these two younger kids that Steve had with Tammy. And he ended up getting custody of his little sister. And when his wife went to go through all of the uh, paperwork to get this you know, sister of, of her husband's, pretty much she told the CPA that she was in the room when, when my brother was killed, that she remembered it but they can't question her. She was only like four at the time, four, four and a half at the time. And so this was something that, you know, went back and forth, which makes me feel like the reason why Tammy was so afraid and reloaded that shotgun and left is that somebody had her daughter somewhere and they were holding her. And it talks about that in the report. Yeah, if she told what she saw, you know, her daughter would, she'd never see her again. And I believe that she was scared as much as my brother was scared because she knew she knew who killed him. She was there. And I believe it was Wes and Lauren. In previous episodes, we have heard about the drug trade in the London area during this time. And Michelle's husband, Tony, has some firsthand knowledge of some of the things that were going on around the time that Sherman Tyne and Herzog were on their killing spree. Please note that some of the names in the audio have been removed. Firstly, Tony tells us about a local gentleman who was involved in the drug trade. Michelle's brother, Donald, was good friends with this man, and he was there a lot. This was also how Tony got to know this man. Michelle's brother introduced me to Ted. Yeah, my brother was really good friends with Ted. He was there a lot. Yeah. I never stayed there. I would just go and, and leave, you know, and I was tried to be there as least amount of time as possible because, uh, yeah, the place gave you a very uh, uncomfortable feeling because of the activity that was going on. Ted uh, was kind of a, um, a facilitator of uh, various people that were involved in either 
manufacturing methamphetamine or storing, selling uh, certain drugs. And uh, he had someone dig a trench from the backside of his house uh, that was probably oh, a couple, two to 300 feet long. And uh, they had uh, built a, uh, like a little storage area there. They probably had a, a room that was, you know, boarded on the walls for like shoring. That was probably uh, 15 by 20, maybe a 300 square foot room. And they had uh, a barber shop chair that was sitting in there. And throughout uh, uh, various conversations, the subject matter came up a couple of times that that chair was used by a couple of individuals who were uh, would enforce uh, certain types of torture on people that uh, weren't doing uh, as they should be. And uh, I didn't really you know, pay a whole lot of attention to it uh, since I wasn't, you know, involved to that extent of what was going on there. Uh, it, uh, you know, just kind of I shook my head and said, okay, whatever, you know, and uh, went about my business. But um, I had conversation with a couple, three other people who had actually been there and actually witnessed at that time some of the, uh, things that were going on within that barber chair. Later on, you know, I separated myself from Ted and the people that were in that circle. And uh, eventually, like everything as time went on, that I'm gonna call it a little compound because it was out in the country and he probably sat on about four or five acres of land. Ted seemed to get out there uh, in the sense of not being mentally stable and uh, eventually the police raided him, I think a couple of three times. And uh, I had heard that that tunnel was actually filled in and uh, it no longer existed. Tony, you had mentioned how large that, that room was when you went in there. Can you describe it to me as best that you remember? Basically the room was, what they had done, I'm in the construction business, uh, and, and uh, basically what they did is they, they took some type of excavating piece of equipment, my guess would be a backhoe, and they dug out a pit that was, you know, approximately, I'm gonna say about 300 square feet. And then they had uh, shored up some of the walls with plywood. Uh, what happens a lot of times when you dig, uh, if you, you know, depending on the ground you're digging in, some of the dirt starts to slough off a little bit, so they had, had uh, some plywood sheets shored to the walls and uh, the floor was dirt. You know, it was uh, nothing fancy, uh, basically just a hole in the ground. Uh, the, the top of it was uh, covered by uh, planks and plywood and then camouflaged with uh, the uh, existing native uh, dirt and leaves and, and grass and things that were around it. Tony, you mentioned that you had spoken to people who witnessed what happened in the chair. Did they give you any type of details about what they had seen? They never described what happened other than the fact that they said people were tortured there and convinced to do, if I remember correctly, what they wanted them to do. 
Hmm. Okay. And so, but they never really said, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, people were, uh, you know, uh, electricity was put to them or they were cut or strangled or they didn't mention the type of harm that occurred, but that definitely, uh, there was some form of enforcement that, uh, that they were administering, uh, at that time. I believe that my brother probably witnessed some horrific things in that room and that with people in that barber chair. And I believe that's part of the reason that he did become uh, a source of trouble for them that, you know, my brother, they probably weren't sure what he was going to do with information he had seen. And I think that was one of the reasons why he was afraid to do certain things like come to my house. He ended up not coming to my house anymore because he said people were following him. He was in fear of his life and he was in fear of his family's life. So he wouldn't come to my house to recuperate anymore. And I think it's because he really knew what these people could do. We then asked Tony if he thought that these people were connected to Wesley and Lauren. You know, I have no direct knowledge of of ever being there or them saying so because they were very careful not to mention names only give you the information but in in conversation that uh uh, you know something to the fact that these people would uh could make people disappear at that time and giving me that information so i don't know what the purpose was of telling me because i really wasn't involved in that particular part of that circle I don't know if it was to try to intimidate me for whatever reason or because they, you know, wanted to share that information because they were thinking it was, you know, cool and and et cetera. We asked Michelle if she had any final words for our listeners. I mean, I would just like to know that if anyone has any information on April 5th, 1993 at the Acorn Inn in Stockton, California, you know, due to my brother's murder that was there, if anybody can come forward with any information, any tips, even as small as you think it might be, yeah, you know, I would truly appreciate it. They'd like to find the killer or killers that are, are really responsible so that this can be a solved homicide and not a cold case file.